Welcome to Hidden Voices with Emma and Francisca. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are here, Emily Sanai, and we've got a, a, as a guest for today, Josh Arno. Um, just a little bit of a background Josh and I, we met in a special um, course uh, or coaching initiative that we were both part of, and we were paired together uh, uh, as coach or co-coaches we could say so and uh, and the idea was that uh, the program gave us the opportunity to obtain some tools and skills for coaching but in a, in, in a way that uh, the pairs trying to pair people from very different background and uh, almost on the concept and correct me if I'm wrong just uh, as, as a reverse mentoring where it was an opportunity for the different people in the pain to learn from each other by using the tools of coaching to get that information and that joint learning. Uh, as part of that uh, connection, actually Joss and I, we discovered that we have a lot of things in common. And, and one of those, again, the same thing, Emma and I, our passion for diversity, equality and inclusion. And furthermore, Joss is doing an amazing job <laughs> on that, uh, on that uh, arena. And that's why we have invited Joss to, to talk to us today, because I think um, uh, it would be great if Joss can share your background, you know, a little bit about, you know, yourself, uh, because that's what we want to hear, uh, uh, to the role that you have at the moment in, in Bloomberg uh, Academy, and also the amazing work that you're doing at the Academy, because I think the impact that you're having, especially in the community, uh, and the young people, which is another of the areas that Emma and I are passionate, we would love, you know, that, that our listeners have the opportunity to to learn about that. Without further ado, you know, Josh, over to you. So absolutely, yeah. Thanks so much to you both for having me on, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about this important topic and something that we're both really passionate about, and same with Emma as well. So um, yeah, it's always exciting. From my side, uh, a little bit of background on me. Um, as you mentioned, I'm currently Academy Manager at Bloomsbury Football, um, which is an organisation that's aiming to remove the barriers to participating in sports. So I do see um, a lot of different backgrounds and cultures in my role and speak to a lot of different people, which is really great um, on this topic. And then um, personally, so I am mixed race. I come from uh, a black mother with Jamaican heritage uh, and a white father who was born and raised in England, in Portsmouth, which is where I'm now living. And uh, yeah, commute into London every day, which is uh, always a challenge, but a lot of fun as well. And I find myself getting a lot done and uh, yeah, trying to be productive. And yeah, I guess I've always had a passion for football and what sport can do for not just young people, but specifically young people in terms of changing their lives and having a really positive impact. Um, and as part of that, uh, sort of diversity comes into it as well in terms of it's an opportunity for people to come together from different backgrounds where they may never have met each other previously and suddenly they're playing on the same football pitch uh, and they have no idea of the other person's background which is really special and they treat each other as equals which maybe we don't see in other walks of life so yeah I'm very enthusiastic about it and hoping to make a change in my lifetime and Hopefully by the end of that, we'll see a very different picture to how we maybe have seen in the past and how it is now as well. And how did you get into that role, Josh? 
how did you uh, yeah. become the manager there? It's been uh, a long journey, even though uh, I'm still fairly young. I've been coaching and working in football for about 10 years now. Uh, starting off a lot of voluntary work, just getting to understand different roles and what I was really passionate about, whether that be football coaching, refereeing, other sports, uh, a bit of teaching. Um, and then went to college, studied sport, went to university, studied sport. I did a master's studies for <laughs> it was just one of those things where I've been really fortunate to always know what I've wanted to do um, and in that time I've just taken on various roles so I worked as three years for three years as a teacher in a prep school um, which was really different to my current role especially in terms of uh, diversity where I was working in a Surrey prep school uh, only for boys and that very much was uh, one type of person in general that you would find there and the same with the parents as well. Uh, and it, I absolutely love my time there and would have, you know, not a bad word to say about the school, my experience. Um, it was incredible for me to be, I guess, the first time that I was in a role of real responsibility and overseeing the football department there, working with some really special colleagues. Um, but Comparing that to my role now and the amount of diversity I see and the different backgrounds, I'm, I just find myself aligning perfectly with the organization's values and the mission statement, um, which is why I, yeah, I guess I'm at Bloomsbury and uh, hopefully will be long term. Uh, I started and got recruited. I got headhunted in this role um, actually during lockdown and ended up coming into London uh, and doing a one to one session in Parliament Hill. Uh, which ended up getting shut down by the police because we were in peak lockdown at the time <laughs> and you weren't supposed to be interacting with anyone but they just wanted to see that I was a human and that I could work with young people so um, we did a, yeah, a little short session uh, got shown around and at the time Bloomsbury uh, in comparison to the 5,000 children that we're seeing every week now was a really small organisation uh, and I was the fourth full-time staff member uh, and now we're at a team of 22 full-time staff and about 80 coaches. So um, fortunately for me, the way things have worked out, I've ended up as academy manager and was promoted to this role last Christmas. Uh, and yeah, now I'm just trying to make sure that from my side, the academy is the best it can be and that I can benefit the rest of the organisation and get more young people involved in football and sport. So it's a real startup organisation then when you joined. Yeah, it was a definite risk uh, moving here because I was in a very safe job in the school. Uh, I'd been offered a significant uh, pay rise to stay there, but I didn't feel that it was the right move for me. I knew I wanted to be working in football um, and I knew that I wanted to make a real difference in some way. And when this opportunity came up, um, it, it just felt the right thing to do to move. Uh, and sometimes I guess you've got to take these risks. I knew I'd be commuting. I knew that it was going to be a small team, but the vibe I got off the people who were already here um, and our CEO, Charlie, who's like really inspiring, I felt that I could definitely add to the current team and hopefully have done so. You have alluded to your experience on the teaching environment in a school. And I know uh, when we talk, uh, and one of the things as well that Joss and I very candidly agree is to be part of a research for uh, the book uh, and, and writing. And, and it's about as well the access to education 
it was one of the elements. Um, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your own experience in terms of what it was for you as a mixed race kid, the experience through education, and also now that you very successful obviously you know you are the manager in the academy uh, and, and you are comfortable sharing your, your experience uh, especially as you as well in the educational uh, you know background <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean I grew up in Somerset uh, in Taunton and it was very much a white dominated area so um, I guess as my mum and I almost became semi-famous for being mixed race and black in a town where there weren't a lot of black people or people from different backgrounds. Um, so you're very recognisable. And I found that to be, I guess at first it was a bit of a novelty and you'd go to school and you were different to everyone else. And I've always been proud of that. I've never had a problem with it. And I've actually been fortunate to have very limited experience of say racism or anything similar but um you definitely it does wear thin after a while of being the only person from that background in your area because obviously you want to be part of a more diverse diverse area i guess um i've always come into london and seen the difference here and feeling like really at home being around every single different culture every different race and background and religion and I think that's really special about London. So whenever coming in to see my family, I always enjoyed those visits and knowing that I would feel part of a family, um, especially on my mum's side and the Jamaican background, I always sort of bought into that massively. Um, so going back to school and um, I always <laughs> had a huge Afro when I was a kid and it was like incredible for anyone at school. We just couldn't believe like, how cool it was but it definitely wore thin after a while like being the only person at school that was black and had different hair to everyone else and yeah I, I think um, you definitely recognize that more uh, with age looking back now and realizing how different I was to a lot of other people but as I say I was fortunate to not really ever be treated differently in a negative way um, okay. but I was definitely seen as different. We, we hear a lot from female um, from black women about their hair and how they've been asked to um, restyle it and not have it in a natural way um, and the the level of conformity they're expected to have in a professional environment and actually in schools as well a lot of the times traditional black hairstyles are not allowed you know cornrows are not allowed so did you, anyone ever comment on your hair at school were you were you told you know you need to get a haircut or did people allow you to just you know express yourself through your hair yeah I mean it was never an issue for me but it was definitely um a point of note in that um and nobody ever told me that I had to change it but it was definitely sort of part of me that people would know me for in terms of my hair and uh, I think in the end I got so fed up of it I just shaved it all off <laughs> not to fit in but more just like because I was just bored of having that style and sort of attracting that attention so yeah um, I ended up going up to university in Manchester uh, and again being in that environment where it was so much more diverse and you know you could easily find a black barber uh, it, it made a huge difference. You feel more at home because you know you're around other people from the exact same background. And Whereas in Taunton, I would have a barber that would come to my house to come and cut my hair because there was such a limited number of people who knew how to cut black hair. Um, 
and yeah I had some horrendous haircuts <laughs> as a result of that so <laughs> finding someone who yeah who you can trust and <laughs> also just the small things of going to a black barbers and feeling a part of a community when you're in there um and I've got the same now in Portsmouth actually I always enjoy going for a haircut because I know I'm going to be around other black people and you you do definitely feel comfortable in that environment so um yeah even if it's not that you're uncomfortable elsewhere you just you just feel at home there is something about being with your own people and feeling like you can just be yourself that is a lovely feeling I know when I've been in spaces where I've um, felt that the people I'm with are part of my community that feels really nice um, and you can just Absolutely. be yourself and not not worry about being anything else and uh, yeah. yeah it's it's pretty which special. is what you alluded to Josh uh, like your current role that you felt was more a place where you belong now that you weren't happy where you before and I think that's something that it come up several times in the conversation today yes you may have not got anything negative as racism however definitely come very strong that element of belonging you know and that's probably what it has guy maybe some of your professional or personal decisions that's my view from this side <laughs> no for sure yeah I think it also impacts the way I do my job as well in that always trying to encourage people to be accepted into different environments and to feel comfortable and to have a better understanding of what makes people feel comfortable with where they are so having people from different backgrounds in a session is brilliant but also might feel lonely if they're the only person from that background if you've got um you know nine of ten english white children in a session and one refugee maybe they're not comfortable so although it's brilliant to have a refugee in that session maybe it's better to set up a refugee session where they can come together as a group from wherever they've come from and you know they feel more comfortable they feel at home they feel like it's somewhere that they're going to keep coming back to and you can have a real impact in that way um so yeah that's that's been something that I've learned myself I was just really interested in terms of the the um the the children that are part of the young people that are participating do you actively go out into communities to recruit or how do you find those people um, and how do you engage with with people from different backgrounds so obviously you've, you've got a mixed race background yourself but you know how do you engage with people from say um, a Sikh background or you know Pakistani Muslim background how, how do you sort of integrate in, in with those communities and gain that trust and, and get people to come along to the academy yeah, it's a great question. I think it's two things, actually. The first one is a simple one, is that we're in London and there is such a range of backgrounds that naturally when people apply for our programmes or they come and join Bloomsbury Football, they will be of different races and they will have had different life experiences. And putting them in the session, bit by bit as we've grown, you found that those communities have started to come together and gather at Bloomsbury as almost a family event coming to play football together, which is lovely. So I think it has happened naturally in many ways, but also you do have to be conscious and try and make decisions that are going to encourage them. So can we be booking pitches in areas that 
um, maybe at the moment don't have enough sports provision and for communities that don't receive the same um, you know, funding to get involved in sport, opportunities to get involved, maybe schools don't provide the football for girls, whatever it might be, and trying to find those niche areas and then fill the gaps. Um, so as I said at the start, what we're aiming to do, we always say, is trying to remove the barriers to participate in because the barriers can look so different for every person, um, whether that be financial, whether that be cultural and your background, um, whether it may just be that you haven't ever had the exposure to a certain sport or an opportunity to get involved. So we're seeing a huge boom in obviously uh, girls football or female football um, over the last sort of six months, which is incredible to see. And a huge part of that, we're trying to recruit more girls into our program off the back of the Lionesses' success this summer. Um, but what we're finding is it's not as easy to just go out and find some girls that want to play football. It's actually, they've never had the opportunity to play football, so they don't actually know if they like football or not. So rather than just finding girls that like football, it's can we go into schools and start putting on girls' football sessions? And not everyone will like it, but if 10% of the girls in that session like it and they come and join Bloomsbury, suddenly that's 10% of those girls, maybe 10 girls, who are now playing regular football every week for a year rather than a one-off opportunity at the park where they kick a ball and decide they don't like it, they're not good at it, and they never play again. So it's just finding those, um, I guess, the, creating the correct environment for people to thrive in. Um, and that sometimes that is, you know, we put on a session for refugees only because there's a thousand refugees staying in a hotel and we have a pitch within five minutes walk that's a perfect opportunity to put on a session but other times it is that our sessions are in Camden, Islington, Westminster and they're very diverse areas and therefore naturally you will of a hundred young people 50 of them may be from different backgrounds which is which is amazing and it's a real beauty of London and it what it's probably what makes Bloomsbury really niche because if you put this in Somerset, you're not going to get the same level of diversity and it's going to be really hard to find um, young people from different backgrounds to, to involve in those sessions. So, yeah, London's really special. So you're, you're providing a feeder for future Lionesses then and future football stars. Can I ask you a, so, yeah. maybe a controversial question or might, might be a difficult one for you to, to answer, but have you got a policy for inclusion of trans people within your academy? We do, yeah, actually. So it's, um, it's a hugely important topic um, and it's not one that I've worked directly on, but we do have uh, trans participants. And actually what's amazing is that you don't always know that somebody is trans and that's been something that's like been really eye-opening for me personally in that what I love about my role and not necessarily being directly on the pitch all the time is that I can have conversations with parents or with young people and pull them off the pitch and have a conversation, get to know people better and often you find out so much about them in those moments whereas you wouldn't get the opportunity to do that at other clubs um, where you may only see the young people for one hour a day or one hour a week, sorry. And suddenly we get the opportunity to stand on the sidelines, have a conversation with the parents. We're spending three or four hours a week 
you travel with them, we're getting opportunities to go to football matches, you're sitting on a coach and the conversations that come out, and I, you know, I'm thinking of one individual in particular, I never knew, um, it was it was actually a parent, but I never knew that they were trans and um, his daughter is non-binary and the only reason they joined the girls' academy rather than the boys' academy was because um, that was the, the session that they got sent to first and they just enjoyed playing with the girls but actually would have been happy playing with both boys and girls it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered and from our side we wouldn't have we wouldn't have minded either so um, the biggest challenge currently with that is that we're making sure that the leagues have the right policies in place to allow for this so it's not necessarily um, the club's decision all of the time it's actually making sure that you're making decisions that align with league regulations. So um, it's, it's a really important topic and it's something that I think is def- well, it's definitely moving in the right, right direction. And I think we're almost in the right place now, but there's definitely, um, you know, there's been horror stories in the past and hopefully we're going to move towards a place where we're avoiding them now. Yeah, so it's so important for all young people to be included in sports no matter how they identify. And it's it's hard enough sometimes to keep teenagers playing sports and keep them fit and active and, and to benefit from the community of being part of a team. Um, but then when you throw in difficulties like that and, and you know, not being able to, to find a club that you can play along with all the rules of, of the... You know, football association not allowing it for for example then then that's a whole group of people who are not getting access to sport which i think is is you know it's it's, it's tragic for our young people really we need to need to include them no, i totally agree i mean for me that is more powerful than the football itself is the social side of of the game is going and spending time with the same people each week creating friends being part of the community and it's not just the young people on the pitch is also the parents on the sidelines and um yeah i'm i'm really proud that at bloomsbury we don't have issues of racism or discrimination in that way um because i think people just accept each other and they know that within that same team uh, i always use the same example but i was coaching our under 13 team last season and there was a boy who uh, just come over from Syria, a refugee, and he's playing alongside uh, the son of one of the wealthiest uh, people in London. So they don't even know the, the stories, they're each other's backgrounds, unless they have that conversation. They probably have never met if it wasn't for Bloomsbury. And yet they're playing on the same team, they're playing in the same league, they're kicking the same football, and it makes absolutely no difference to the treatment that they receive from the coaches, from the sidelines. They're, they're equals, and that's like really special. Super powerful, definitely. You know, because you are totally right. They probably will never have come across with each other because they are from so different contexts. And I think what strikes me, as you say, is that you haven't seen any behaviours <laughs> that may not be acceptable uh, despite being so different because that was one of my questions about, you know, I know that you and your team put a lot of effort have the tools to ensure that you are inclusive, but is that the same for the families and the kids? You know, do you have any, any challenges there? <laughs> Definitely. So I'll use the example of our refugee programme again because it's um, such a poignant example at this time as well. Um, and it's not 
just that we offer the football sessions we'll also provide like language classes alongside the football sessions so that the parents and the families and the siblings can be learning english whilst a sibling or a son or daughter is playing football on the pitch um even just putting on you know tea and coffee so that there's an opportunity and it encourages people to stick around rather than dropping their child off and going back home and then coming back at the end of the session. Like if you can encourage people, it's the small acts that bring people together and create that community because, you know, in their situation, a lot of them are, you know, going for a really challenging time and they need the support, not only of us, because there's only so much that we can do as two, three, four coaches per session, but actually, if they've all got each other and there's 50 participants in a session, that means there's likely 40, 50 families um, that can engage with each other, help each other out, create some friendships. And um, yeah, that's that's, I guess, the, the best example we currently have. But there's certainly challenges to it as well, of course. I mean, you're not everyone is going to be as accepting of other people and it's just for me, what I'm really passionate about, whether it's recruiting staff, whether it's recruiting players, whether it's having part, uh, families as part of our club, we want just good people. It's all about finding good people that want to be involved in the organisation. And, you know, if it's a coaching job that they're applying for, we can make a good person into a good coach. But it's hard to make a good coach into a good person if they're not already. So, yeah, for me, that's that's most important is find good people um, that have you know a really a real passion about football but also community and you know spreading love I guess across yeah giving that opportunity to which is one of the, the things that you know researching on the access the equal access to opportunities and you have given some good examples there with the work that you guys do because you know for some families may have some difficulties even in being able to take the kids to those places you know because it means taking them away from their work where there will be less money from them so i guess which for i know what you have described for us you are facilitating those opportunities to ensure that that equal opportunity exists despite the context where they are right mm -hmm. definitely i mean that is exactly a really good point that you make about the travel to and from sessions because uh, what we offer here is a financial assistance model. So it means that those paying the full price for our sessions will actually be subsidizing those that can't afford it. So they will pay slightly more than what it costs us to run the sessions. And they're aware of that. But actually, it means that you're helping a young person that cannot afford it, that maybe you know receives universal tax credit or free school meals. They can now come to the session and play a pay a really minimal amount to participate. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily involve the travel to and from sessions. So even if you're on a subsidised rate and even if you get the sessions for free, which some people will be on a full scholarship, if the session's in Camden and you need to jump on a tube, like that's not cheap, you know, and it's not always feasible to walk or to cycle. So there are only some so many barriers that we can break down or that are in our control and then there's others that we have to consider and try and help where we can and we've had examples where you know a couple of coaches have gone round to schools and picked kids up and taken them to the sessions so that the parents can stay at work or um, our holiday camps have been extended the length of the day to ensure that 
parents don't have to leave work early to come and pick them up so they can still do the full day of work they don't lose out on on money so yeah it's you have to be really considerate of so many different circumstances and um, again I'm, I'm so fortunate in my job to have regular conversations with so many different people and yeah. it's made me really realize the the different stories everyone has a different story and you you can't treat anyone the same in terms of when you're trying to provide um, you know equal opportunities you have to acknowledge that everyone is different and although we're trying to make it equal for everyone everyone's facing different challenges and there are different solutions absolutely and is that the same for things like football boots and kit and you know what, what happens for, for the kids who can't afford or their parents can't afford that yeah you're spot on that's another one that we're facing so we've actually got a service called reboot which is where when they grow out of their football boots they'll then hand them in to us and we will distribute them again to other people who may not be able to afford a pair of boots or even if you can afford a pair of boots why not buy a second hand pair of boots for five or ten pound rather than going to the shop and giving nike uh a hundred pound i should probably use that adidas because we're sponsored by nike so yeah buy your hundred pound nike boots but don't buy a hundred pound adidas <laughs> but yeah no, it's, it's a real important barrier to break down because kit is expensive and um again on the same on the um like the uniform that they wear the kit for matches mm-hmm we are able to offer 50-60% discounts off the Nike price for the kit because, as we know, it's expensive to buy kit. So, yeah, this, we can help where we can and there's also like the standard barriers that are out of our control that we just have to be exactly. understanding of and, you know, sometimes it might be even at the 50% discounted rate, it's not possible to purchase the kit. So on occasions, maybe the club has to take the hit and buy the kit for that young person. It's just kind of case by case basis. Okay. I mean, I'm a mother of girls, but my friends who have boys tell me that they grow out of shoes and football boots at an alarming rate as teenagers. So, you know, they can be going through boots, three, three different sizes in the season. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's a lot to, to have to fund if you haven't got any spare money exactly. at all or you're trying to make a decision about the uh, the food bills or the the energy bills you know at the moment um obviously that's a really big worry for lots of families right now definitely yeah i can see it changing the landscape of our service as well in that we're going to have to provide more and more support for people because we want to keep people active but the yeah. challenges that are currently being faced mean that people will have you know more financial worries and actually are they going to be prioritising football or are they going to be prioritising making sure they can pay the bills at the end of the month? So again, we want yeah. to be in that position and it's conversations that we're obviously having internally to make sure that we can still provide the support. Um, and we have an amazing fundraising team who are applying for grants every day and making sure that you know we have the money to be able to continue subsidising for as many young people that need it so as we grow as an organization so will the number of people needing subsidized football provision and we want to be in a place that we can provide that and make sure that you know even those now i think nowadays i was speaking personally as well you know you, you can be on a decent salary and still at the end of the month be thinking do you know what like that's a crazy bill to be paying so it's not necessarily looking at it and thinking okay it's a certain number of people who are going to be concerned here i think the whole country 
is in a place at the moment where they're concerned that when this is going to stop and you know exactly. at what stage are the bills going to sort of peak and until that point we have to be here to to provide and understand and you know be all ears I guess and just make sure that we can provide the support that people need. Wow. Yeah, so much. And I think it's what you say is doing what you can within your control, but there's so many things that there is out of control. But at least, you know, with the samples that you have provided to us, you are doing what you can to actually, even if it's not <laughs> you're making, but actually to how you could get around those barriers. And I think that will have a huge impact. It's like, I remember when we talked uh, recently about that fantastic you know, camp that you have with England, um, and then you realise that one of the kids um, were not going into the swimming pool until you realise that it's because they didn't know how to swim, and you actually go and help them to learn to swim, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Sometimes it's those personal stories that are the most special, definitely. So, yeah, as you say, we went to St George's Park, England's training ground, and we take about 80 young people up there which is really special it's an experience that they wouldn't otherwise get and um, again there's no barrier to participate and you can be anyone if you're the right age for the trip you come on the trip if you can't afford to pay we subsidize it um, and everyone gets the equal experience and yeah we go into the swimming pool and they've never had exposure to that they've never been swimming before so um, yeah my colleague and I are organizing some swimming lessons so that they can then go and go and learn to swim and have that life skill that maybe they'd go through their whole lives never knowing and actually you know why not it's an important it's an important skill to have so um, yeah we it's really special that we can make those small differences and I think that's what like really drives me on in my job is that you find these small stories all the time and there's it's a never-ending list because we're growing and we're seeing more and more young people and um, you you get different challenges and even at the weekend uh, on Saturday, I went to a tournament and I had a chance to sit down with some of the girls and just find out, you know, some of the barriers. There was a young girl who was swearing a lot on the pitch and obviously we're discouraging that and she's just joined the club. So we're just understanding like why these things happen and it turns out, you know, parents are going through a really rough time at the moment and hasn't seen her family for a while and it just knowing that means that we can treat her in the right way and make sure that we can facilitate um for her needs better whereas if we don't have those conversations then we don't have an understanding of the person and it's easy to judge and just think you know that's unacceptable behavior we don't accept that our club or whatever it might be when actually you know it's fully justified that i mean i think anyone would have the same level of frustration and anger if they were going through the same situation that she is currently so yeah again it all comes down to support and yeah making sure it was it was nice as well because I found out that she's got identical background to me you know she's mixed race she's got a black mother from Jamaica she had a white father it's you know it's it chatting with her and just sort of looking each other in the eyes and going like I've got you like I understand what you're going through and although yeah my family situation certainly isn't as crazy as what yours is right now but like we can relate in a different way and suddenly she feels like maybe she's got someone to that she can turn to or look forward to chatting with at sessions. So, yeah, it's so important. Good. 
I mean, this brings to life. I, I just remember one of the last podcasts we did, and I think you listened to that, the one we did with Alessandro Osola. Uh, and I think it, even it's different, but it brings again the power of biosport, <laughs> how you can make so much different in society and, and inclusive behaviors. And I think both of you have a similar message, in my view, but coming with totally different angles. And I think that's, that's very powerful, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, as you know, I've listened to the episodes, and yeah, I'm so I I believe so strongly in the power of sport and the difference that it can make. It's like it's it's a one-off. It's nothing else compares, and that's a biased view from my side because I spent my lifetime, you know, supporting a football club that I follow around the country and going to sports events, training, coaching, everything. But there's something just really special about those moments in football when someone scores the winning goal and the whole team run over and jump on them and celebrate together. And <laughs> you just don't get those moments, even when you're in the crowd. And I was at the Lionesses uh, final at Wembley and just seeing like 90,000 people from all different backgrounds and predominantly female as well in a football stadium, cheering on 11 English ladies that were like creating history was just so special. And, you know, when they win it and, people are hugging you and you've never met them before and you've just like <laughs> randomly been placed next to them. Those moments just don't happen in normal life. When you're walking down the street, you don't get a chance to celebrate life together. So I think that's, yeah, it's, it's so different to anything else that I've ever experienced. And um, yeah, I, I believe so strongly in the power it has. I was going to say your passion comes across, Josh. It, it really does. You can see how much what you do and how rewarding it is for you as an individual to be to be working in such a great organisation. Um, we always ask our guests the same question: If you could be really seen, if you could like have someone listen to you and really hear you, what would you want people to know? Uh, I think it's the most important thing for me is just inclusion and equality honestly so making sure that every single person has the equal opportunity no matter what their background is to be the best that they can be um, I'm a huge believer in just trying to be the best you can be every day always learning always upskilling and it's sad that not every person gets the equal opportunity to do that so from my perspective it's just a case of making sure that we do remove those barriers and yet it's using the Bloomsbury phrase, but as I say, I align really closely with it in that whatever walk of life you're going through and whatever it is that you want to achieve, we should always try and help people to break down the barriers to reach their their goals. Um, and yeah, set your, set your targets high. I love my job and where I am now, but you know, I want to be impacting and influencing more people in my life as well. So hopefully you know, keep striving towards that and, uh, yeah, just, I guess, never give up on that. 5,000 people is a pretty good start. It's okay, it's okay. 10,000 yeah. by the end of this year, though. <laughs> I love it, love it. And where can people find out more about um, Bloomsbury? Yeah, so um, the website is the easiest way. It's www.bloomsburyfootball.com. Um, we're on all social media platforms so just search Bloomsbury Football on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you wherever you may go um, and then I'm always happy to receive emails or whatever it might be it's j.arnold at bloomsburyfootball.com so feel free to reach out if you've had a listen.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been so great to talk to you. I could ask you about another 20,000 questions, actually. <laughs> but, we'll have to uh, do a part two then, won't we? We will have yeah. to do a part exactly. two. Yeah, exactly. We have to do season two. We would have different <laughs> seasons. We'll do part two when we're seeing 10,000 a week. I was just going to say that. When you get to 10,000, we can do part two next, next series. Fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you so exactly. much. Well, it's been brilliant talking to thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Hidden Voices with Emma and Francisca, and we look forward to sharing our next podcast with you very soon. Bye.